to our community. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Be glorified in your house today. Amen. Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences for my own actions. That's a quote I came across a a few years ago, and now it runs through my head. Every time I do something stupid, I'm like, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences for my own actions. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt that. You're like, I I had that one coming. I, yeah, I I had that one coming. I've done so many stupid things. I've lost track. I've lost count. I, you know, if you ask me to name them, I I don't even know where to start. Um, But uh, we've all done things that are are foolish and we have uh, to pay the consequences for it. Well, we're concluding our series today on the life of David, uh, our series of shepherds and kings. Um, Last week, Brittany Dunn brought a powerful word on uh, entertaining sin and lust and how sin compounds, right? And uh, David's adultery with a woman, with Bathsheba, ultimately led down the road to murder, and he orchestrated the death of her husband Uriah, and uh, to all this to cover this affair he had and the impregnation of Uriah's wife. And so uh, sin has a tendency to grow. It's like yeast, Jesus compares it to, right? And, uh, and so we need to be careful of those things. Well, um, David's plan of killing Uriah is interesting because, remember, in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen, he sends a letter to Joab and he says, Station Uriah in the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several, several other Israelite soldiers. So that's how David was able to murder Uriah without his hands getting dirty. But something interesting about David's plan for eliminating Uriah was it wasn't that all that original. I don't know if you know this, but it had actually been modeled for him uh, by his former master, Saul. If you look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 17, it says, One day Saul said to David, I'm ready to give you my older daughter, daughter, daughter Merab, what's a daughter? I don't know, as, as your wife. But first you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. So, kind of interesting. We like to think that we're pretty clever with our sin. We, thought, we like to think that we're pretty unique and original, but we're only fooling ourselves. Um, David's plan was really just a rehash of what someone tried to do to kill him. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says the temptations in life that we deal with are no different than what others experience. And so sin is, is nothing original. As a matter of fact, David's own son, Solomon, wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He said, sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing truly is ever truly new. And so we like to think that our sin is somehow creative maybe or unique to us and that God has maybe a special, I'll let that pass because of X, Y, and Z reasons. But let me tell you, the same God who saw beyond the outward appearance with David, remember when David was the shepherd boy and he saw beyond the outward appearance and he saw to the heart, now saw exactly what David's heart was even though he was successfully deceiving everyone else around him. He had killed Uriah. He had had the perfect plan worked out. He was married to Bathsheba. Now they're going to raise this child. But God saw what was truly going on. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. 
Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Wow. So, God sees all. And this is the verse that scared me the most when I was a kid, right? He sees the hand in the cookie jar. God knows, but, but, but God sees David's sin, and he has him confronted, right? David is confronted through the prophet Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes and points at him and said, uh, you've done this thing, and... Uh, And sometimes I've grappled with this because what follows is sometimes I feel like, did David get off easy? Did David get kind of the easy path? Because Old Testament law called for the death penalty for murderers. It was very clear. If you kill someone, you die. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. David deserved to die. And David didn't get any jail time or death or even probation. He... He was fine. Uh, But there were indeed repercussions. Um, When we look at David's life, it's really tragic what happens from this point on. This is kind of a marker point in his life at which everything takes a turn. He still had passion for the Lord. His life was still dedicated to the Lord. But because of his sin, it introduced some brokenness into his world. God's forgiveness is complete, but it doesn't always absolve the consequences of our actions. Which is unfortunate, it's, you know, many of us would like those things absolved. But if, if you drive under the influence and have your license revoked, you can repent to the Lord and you are fully forgiven. But you still have that consequence of what came with it, right? There are consequences to sin. There are things that follow it. And the penalty for David's sin should have been, by law, his own life. But what happened? In verse uh, 13 and 14 of Second Samuel chapter 12, it says, Nathan replied to David, Yes, the Lord has forgiven you. You won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So instead of David receiving the penalty for what he did, which it should have been his own life, instead his son's life took his place. And this wasn't willingly, this was an infant child. This infant child received the full measure of justice that was due for David. By law, was due for David. And this infant child received the full justice of what David should have received in his place. And David's personal life and family began to unravel from this point forward. As as you read all the way up to this chapter in in the narrative, it's been just great for David. Like, not one bad thing has happened. I mean, he's been chased around by Saul, but he hasn't made any bad choices, and he is living the good life. Things are going great for David, and then he makes this decision, and it's like this this turning point in the paradigm of his world, just things start coming apart. Um, By taking on many wives, there's now uh, this this distrust that occurs within the family. Imagine that, having multiple wives causes problems. Um, There's... Things start to fall apart. There's competition and there's challenge for the throne. Um, In the following chapters of 2 Samuel, uh, one of David's daughters is incestuously raped. And then one of his children murders another child in an honor killing for that thing. And then his son Absalom leads a coup against David. It's a rebellion that's so successful that David actually has to flee from the palace. He has to flee from Jerusalem, the capital city, and live... In the wilderness again, just like he was when he was running from Saul. Kind of set back to square one. He wasn't king anymore, essentially. He was living on the lamb. He was, he was back to where he was. So we can see here that sin's consequences are far-reaching. We like to think that it's an A to A, B to B type consequence, right? If, if I get caught for speeding, the consequence is I get a ticket. 
Well, there's more to it than that, right? Then there's points on your, on your license. There's probably your insurance going up. There's more things repercut. People don't want to ride with you anymore. I don't know. But things start to add up. And there's things that we don't see. The, the effects of sin kind of, it seeps through all of your life. And David's sin had a far-reaching effect, far more than the, just the direct correlation consequence that we like to just line up so clean and neat. Sin doesn't play neat like that. Sin doesn't play neat like that. So, but we, what we remember as we study David and re, recall this, that David's life is ultimately, it's an arrow that points from the king of Israel to the king who is above every other king. From the king who is faulty and flawed to the king who is above all. David demonstrates a redemption in his life, actually, that we could never deserve. He plays something out in his life that is actually quite beautiful. So we see all these flaws of David. We see the brokenness that pervades through his life because of the choices he's made. This is why we don't place particular individuals on a pedestal, even Bible characters, other than Christ. Because they are broken, flawed people. But we can look at the story of what Christ did through them and how we relate to God ourselves in this in this narrative and so you remember that david had a good friend a couple weeks ago i preached on jonathan do you remember jonathan jonathan david's friend his confidant he was the son of saul next in line to be king well he had a son he's not often talked about but if you have your bibles open them with me to second samuel chapter four second samuel chapter four verse four it says this Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. So Mephibosheth is is Jonathan's son. It's Saul's grandson, and he is dropped. His legs are either... uh, fractured or broken or maybe it's a spinal injury um but he we don't know but he becomes crippled because of it and sometimes when we hear the story of david we think when saul dies in battle everybody's like well david you're the guy no that's not how it worked there was actually uh this this we like to think that there's a nice democratic transition of power right it did not happen like that uh this was not a clean and easy uh new new regime that came in there was war between the houses of Saul and the house of David there were people who were loyal to Saul and his family and people who were loyal to David so there was war about who would be king in second Samuel chapter 3 verse 1 it says that was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David and as time passed David became stronger and stronger while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker so it was not a clean transition of power not everybody danced and said now David's the guy there was a battle going on over who would be in power and transition from one monarchy to another is messy business all royal lineage had to be eliminated in the day if someone had a claim to the original throne, they could destabilize a new king's reign. And so it wasn't just a matter of getting them outvoted. You had to destroy them. So it was normative to wipe out all claimants to the throne. Any potential rivals had to be eliminated. And so there's this war between families. And really what that meant was you are killing off every person who could be a threat to you. And we're watching the end of Saul's dynasty here. A systematic eradication of the house of Saul. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 9... Verse 1, one day David asks, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Now the initial part of this question would appear that David is doing mop-up duty. Who's left? Did we get them all? 
Any further threats, right? That's what it would sound like. Is anyone still alive? But here's what it goes on to say. Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. And Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So, as we establish, Mephibosheth is, and I'm going to mispronounce this at some point, I promise, is uh, from age five, he's paralyzed. He goes from being a prince to essentially being an orphan. His dad is dead. He's now um, no longer living in the palace. He's gone from living in a place where he is... uh, uh, Royalty to now living in a place that he does can't even call home. Um, as a matter of fact, Mephibosheth wasn't even his given name at birth. First Chronicles tells us that Jonathan named him, actually named him uh, Mir Baal, which means the opponent to Baal. And uh, so Jonathan named his son. I, I, I think he's saying, you are going to be a champion for the Lord. Baal is the, is the god of their mortal enemies, right? Of the, of the Philistines and the people around them. And so when he names him this, I think he's thinking, you are going to be a warrior for God. You are going to be someone who, who tears down enemy strongholds. And he has these dreams for, for, for Mephibosheth and names him this name. Yet at some point, his name gets changed. My speculation, this isn't evidence anywhere, but I think he changed his name when, when uh, David's lineage started taking over the throne and he went kind of uh to live as a what's it called when you're uh trying not to be found incognito witness protection that's it yeah he went into witness protection program and he changed his name to mephibosheth and mephibosheth means a lot different something a lot different than that mephibosheth means out of the mouth of shame and so he went from being one who wars against Baal to being out from the source of shame and so Mephibosheth flees from this life of opulence in a palace, and now he's living in Lodabar, and Lodabar is backwoods. It is, it is, you go past Oak Ridge, it's way out there. <laughs> and he, the Lodabar means the house with no bread. It's this place of, of uh, just nothing. It's the, the wilderness. It's empty, it's devoid. And so he's living in the wilderness and the scripture tells us he's living in a home that isn't even his. He's living in somebody's house. And so he's in hiding in this place. And so David, in verse 5, it says, sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. Imagine that moment where the guard of the king who is in power shows up at your door. You've been fleeing for your life since you were five years old. And bam, 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 bam. There's the, the guard. You're like, this is it. We had a good run. I mean, what a, what a moment. You're, there's this person at the door. The king has issued a search for you. He wants you brought in. He can't run. His limbs have betrayed him. The very blood in his veins have made him the enemy of David. And it says in verse 6, His name was Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth, I told you I would, bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? 
Now, dogs were viewed a little different in the day as they are now. Now, in today's culture, they've got strollers and dog spas and, you know, you can get a therapist for your dog, for goodness sakes. You know, we've got, dogs are part of the family. And that day, uh, dogs were, I, I've been to other corners of the world where dogs are more like viewed a little closer to how uh, they're just insignificant. At best, maybe varmints or, or just kind of uh, unclean. They, they go around eating things you don't want to see. They're, they're just flea-bitten animals. And so recall Goliath's taunt to David. Remember when David comes to fight him, he says, am I a dog? A dog is an insult. And so to be a dead dog is even lower than that. And so that's what Mephibosheth says. He says, a dead dog like me, why would you allow me in? But then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth also had a young son named Micah, and from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. He went from being hunted, from being a threat to the throne, to eating at the king's table. What a story. Mephibosheth was living under a wrath that he didn't have to live under. He was living under a fear of judgment and wrath that he didn't even have to live under. He was living on the edge of society, far away. But the blood in his veins is what condemned him. But the wrath of David was justified to go and kill him. However, the blood of Jonathan was more powerful than the blood of Saul. The blood of Jonathan, the commitment and covenant David had to Jonathan, overrode any of that death that Mephibosheth had upon himself. And so David says, I see Jonathan. I see my covenant with Jonathan. And the wrath that should be burning against you today is not there. Let me tell you, we have the blood. The Bible says that we have the blood of our ancestor Adam in us. We are usurpers to the throne. We are uh, people who have rebelled against the king. And Romans 5.12 says that sin, sin came into the world through one man and that sin spread to everyone for everybody sins. But just as the covenant with Saul... Saul's son Jonathan overpowered the wrath due him. The covenant that was established through Jesus overpowers the wrath that is due us. You see, God is the king. Each one of us have rebelled against the king. Each one of us has the wrath that is due to come down upon us. But let me tell you, in the same way Jonathan's covenant overpowered that, the covenant through Jesus is what covers us and receives the wrath that should have been for us. Mephibosheth didn't do anything to earn it. It was all because of the work that was done by his father. It's through Jesus' death that we receive it. Jesus said on the cross, once and for all, he cried out, it is finished. It's not started. It's not a ways along. He said it is finished. And it's interesting because Lodabar, this place where, where he was living, stands in contrast to David's hometown of Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? The house of bread. And it's the eventual birthplace of Jesus. And we know that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And so we see this contrast of being outcast to the edges of society, living in the house of no bread, and then being brought in to to the place where he's sitting at the king's table. Jesus has brought us to the king's table. And let me tell you, church, restoration is available to you and to me. I don't stand on a pedestal. Well, I am standing on a pedestal, but a, a figurative pedestal any higher than anybody else. We are all on the same level before God. Fallen, broken, sinful people in need of forgiveness. 
But each one of us have an opportunity for restoration that's available. Mephibosheth has had everything restored. He has been brought back into the palace. He's been brought back into the, the, the home of the king, a place of belonging. Look at verse 11 again. It says he was treated as one of David's own sons. Not just as someone who works in the house that gets to eat there, as one of his own sons. John 3, 1 says that God calls us his own children. That's the audacity of grace. That's the audacity of grace. So today, let me tell you, you're invited to the king's table. Because Mephibosheth's story is our story. We've all at one time been lost or broken. We've all at one time been without hope. Maybe you're still in that time. You haven't found the hope that I'm talking about yet. Maybe you've been in a period of time where maybe it's been a long time. You feel like, I don't understand my purpose, my reason for being. I feel emptiness. I feel broken. I feel like maybe even stepping out of this world because I don't know what it's about. Let me tell you that there's hope for you. Several years ago, there were 12 animators that collaborated together on a short film that tells the gospel in just an absolutely beautiful way. So I want to show this film to you for just a moment. It's, it's very short. It's under like three minutes. But through different pieces of art and through poetry and music, it tells the gospel story. Take a look at this. I am the might before the sword, the tremors in the spear shaft. I craft my ways from blazes of firestorms, absorb the failings of deadened ends to render the floors I dance upon. I am the spaces between applause, the roars of hearts running through heaven's halls. I breathe the forms of light and silence, stall the course of cosmic riots. I am the glory of the giants Manaslu, Sagamatha, watchmen of the Asian plains. They yield my name, made famous through the cries of albatross flocks, inflamed in Pacific fires. I am dressed in the spray of Nevada dunes, clothed in the shadows of Sahara caves, I am the light of lunar flames, fleshing the rains of Amazonia. I paint the trains of Antarctic quests, release dominion to desert Panthera. I authorize the remains of Aztec and Inca that bloom through the visions of mountain tribes. I ride the skylines, breathe the signs, ignite the paths of astronomy's eyes. I am the unheard, heard in the storms that burn on my words. I am the yearned for, I am the word. I emerge deciduous from the wetlands of your cries, rise through the moments you wake. I bring the dawns that shake the fevers from your remembrance. I am here, I am imminent. I am he who crosses the plains through which you strayed. Discover the parts extinction seared. I dust away the dried remains of tears, drain the lakes of your regrets. I wet the worlds, till the soil, forsake the toil, quell the rages, sow the broken pages with my belief in you. I bring the you you have never quite met. I am the desire that keeps your pillow wet. I am the heartbeat you seek when you chase after dreams in the reaching 
hands and sighs you are looking for me in the body touching body it is me you seek in the groans and the longings it is me you seek in the yearning dream in the need to be seen in the love me love me it is me you seek in the breath drop wonders gasping hunger in the touch of a stranger that makes you feel younger in the books and the fables in the this is me labels in the is this me is this me in the hear me hear me say my name in the touch me find me need me find me in the aching pain in the love the music the beats the taste in the heat and the need and the need for embrace in the color the gaze the meaning the desire in the flame of the voice and the spirit of the fire when you cry for more my name you weep i am he who waits for you to reach i reach for you and wait when you lie half broken and awake i am the watchman of your sleep i wait and wait till the shakings cease i am the truth they call release When the darkness flares and starts to speak I sculpt the shades of daybreak It is me you seek That video says he is here he is imminent Did you know God is pursuing you those yearnings that we feel that maybe we try to fill with relationships and maybe it's intimacy with people maybe it's filling that void with distractions all these things and yet he's saying i'm calling to you maybe you feel that call in the in the still of the night you feel it hitting in your chest that is god pursuing you he's coming after you you matter to him so much And though we've been separated, though there's been a curse that has separated us from God, he sent his best, he sent his son, and that reconciliation is available. There's a story where David's been separated from one of his literal children because uh, there's there's been this family again dispute that's separated them. And a woman comes up to David and she talks talking to David about how there needs to be reconciliation to her son and she says something that just hit me. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 14, she says this to King David. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. Our lives are short, but your life matters to God. And eternity matters to God. The Bible tells us that God placed eternity in the hearts of men. That eternity has been sown into us. We know there is more than just what this world has to offer. We know that there is more than just the, the, the things that we do day in, day out, day in, day out until we breathe our last. But there is an eternity that hangs in the balance. And God cares for you right now. And he wants that restoration. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes together, church? If you've been wondering, if you've been grappling, if you've been wrestling, I'm here to tell you it's him you seek. Holy Spirit, speak now.
I can't say something that's going to convince you to give your life to Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So all I'm going to do is invite you to this opportunity. Because right now the king is searching for you. Just as David went looking for Mephibosheth, the king is searching for you. And if he's knocking on the door of your heart, if he's there, you feel this pounding in your chest right now, that is him speaking to you. So right now, if you say, Pastor Brent, I have never given my life to Christ, or maybe it has been something where I've been on the run, living life on my own terms, and I need to surrender my life to him, return back to the God of my first love. If that's you, will you raise your hand and raise it high? I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Thank you. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Yes. Does anyone else want to join these? Thank you. Right now, church, we're going to pray this prayer together. This is a prayer that's not magic in the combination of words or anything like that. It's a prayer that is the position of our heart. It's affirming the belief that we have in our heart. The Bible says in the book of Romans that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and when we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so this is a prayer of faith, but it's the beginning of a journey because we are not just talking about getting a get-out-of-jail-free card, get-out-of-hell-free card. We are talking about now discipleship following Jesus. It's just like that marriage we were talking about where now this changes the whole trajectory of your life. When you get married to someone, the whole purpose and trajectory of your life changes. So this is a big step. If you are raised your hand or if you are praying this prayer, this is heavy. This is not a lightweight decision. This is both the biggest and best moment of your life if you are making this decision today. So right now, church... As a community, let's pray this together. Whether you've prayed it a thousand times or if this is your first, let's pray it with conviction. Repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you came and died for me and resurrected on the third day. And you offer me life. So I give you my life. You are my king. You are my Lord. From this day forward, I no longer live my life on my terms. You are my God. I will serve you all of my days. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Did you know the Bible says, it actually says that heaven throws a party when someone comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Right now, there is a riotous party in heaven as one of God's children has come home. And we celebrate with you right now today. That is awesome. Praise God. Praise God. Next, next Sunday, we have seven people lined up to be baptized in water. It's going to be an awesome Sunday next Sunday. It's going to be great. But here's what we're going to do right now. We have not yet done our connection cards. Maybe you've already done one. Do a bonus one. We don't care. All right. So what, what we're going to do is if you'll go to nlcchurch.com slash connect or uh, use the paper one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't like technology, that's fine. Um, just fill that out. Let us know you were here. Let us know if this is your first time. Sign up for things that are important. Also, in the comment section, if there's something we can be praying with you about. We pray every Tuesday at 6 a.m. The elders and myself, we pray over these prayer requests. We want to lift them up. We read each one out 
together and we pray over them. So if there's something we can be praying with you about, if there's an answer to prayer, maybe God's done something awesome in your life and you just want to celebrate it. I love praise reports. I like moving things from the prayer column to the wind column, okay? So tell us what God's been doing in your life. We want to celebrate that with you, all right? So I'm going to give you 15 more seconds to finish filling that out. I can see people feverishly filling out their connection cards. That's great. Fill those out. And uh, if you did a paper one, ushers, if we could just have the buckets at the back to grab those, that would be awesome. I'm going to pray us out, church, all right? Father, I thank you so much for this community of faith, the affection that's in this church for one another, the desire to serve you wholly and completely, and the call that is in this church community to reach our world with the love of Jesus, that we don't exist for our own means, for our own purposes, but we exist to go and make disciples of all nations, to bring hope and life into a dying world that needs hope so desperately. So empower us this week, Holy Spirit. Empower us to have conversations that otherwise we may falter. Give us the words to speak and to dead, drying, dead bones, Lord. I pray, God, that you would make us uh, life givers. And we thank you for it, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. New Life Church, be blessed. Have a blessed week. We will see you in life groups throughout the week.